0: Christopher, you're my older brother a little bit. You were born in 76. I was born in 77. I was also born in San Francisco. You are in California. So I feel like this is going to go well.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the composer Christopher Tin, whose music includes symphonic works, choral anthems, and electroacoustic hybrid film and video game scores. His latest project is To Shiver the Sky, which releases Friday on Decca Gold, and which is, in the composer's words, an oratorio about the history of flight and mankind's quest to conquer the heavens. Let's say your breakout was composing for the Civilization series. Is that fair to say? First of all, oh yeah. I mean, that's
1: that's totally what happened.
0: Yeah. to Stanford with a guy who was working on the latest Civilization game. That's a PC game, got going in 1991. It's now a a console-wide franchise. I'm interested in the experience of writing for video games. Specifically, I know that video game music, by definition, has to be adaptive. I think the best example that I could use that people would relate to is in super mario brothers you're walking along you get the invincibility star and you leave from your
1: (laughs) exactly
0: but then your invincibility wears off right and so what do you do you get like a ds there (laughs) or a dc (laughs) right and you're back at the beginning yep totally I would imagine, I would have to imagine that you can't write for a video game like you're writing uh, a typical concert work, which is to say you can't through compose it. You have to come up with different sections of adaptive music, but I've never done it. So I'd love to hear from you about how that works.
1: Honestly, it entirely depends on the game and the situation that you're writing for. I mean, what happened with me in the case of the Civilization franchise is I have been brought in to write the main menu song for two of the games, Civilization IV and Civilization VI. And that is honestly one of the most liberating areas of media music that you can compose for. Because a video game menu screen is just a screen where the music just plays underneath it and the music doesn't have to synchronize to anything. Contrary to, say, scoring the opening title sequence of a movie or a TV show or a commercial or or scoring a scene in a show where the music has to start at a certain point and has to hit certain emotional beats and it has to end at a certain point in a certain way with an opening screen for a video game You can do whatever you want, essentially, right? As long as you set the tone of the game, maybe state a main melodic theme that's going to sort of persist through the game. It's really one of the most blank canvases that you can find in the media scoring world. That said, there is a lot of adaptive music that happens within the game as well. I don't get called on to do as much of that, but I do do a fair amount of that still. It just depends on the nature of the game. I mean, some games... It is literally, you write a piece of music and that piece of music will get interrupted at some point by another piece of music. You sort of know that. Sometimes you write a piece of music that you know is just going to loop potentially for hours on end. And so the challenge is, write a one minute piece of music that will not get tiresome to listen to after you've been playing that particular scene in the game for two hours, right? It totally varies.
0: That's the truth. I'm thinking now of Brian Eno's aesthetic behind his Music for Airports album. It has to be music that can both advance and recede in your ears. You can pay as much attention to it as you want to, or you can completely tune it out. And that is a tough, that's a tough mission for any composer in any situation. I would think.
1: I think so, but I feel like as a generation of composers who have kind of grown up with more of an ambient aesthetic from the likes of Brian Eno and, you know, minimalism and 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 just just sort of ambient pop music in general, I feel like today's composers working in these media spaces are more equipped to write music that doesn't force you to engage with it but allows you to engage with it. And I think you sort of see this in the, the, the classical world as well. You have a lot of artists who are hybrid artists who come over from the media world, people like Max Richter, for example, who do classical releases that have a bit of that open-ended ambient feel to them, you know, or, or people like Oliver Arnolds or, or, um, gosh, like Nils Fromm, for example. You know, these are pieces a lot of times that are just sort of meant to allow you to, sort of wade in and space out. Sometimes it's literally music to allow you to fall asleep to, right? So this is kind of this trend I think that we're seeing in in you know what some people call post-classical music as well. Just open-ended spaces musically speaking.
0: Do you see yourself as a post-classical composer?
1: No, I don't.
0: I really hate saying, "Oh, so and so is a minimalist." Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or or whatever, because it's like then you put them in a box and then you don't have to do any homework and figure out what their music's all about. But if you could describe your music in any terms, if you would want to, what would you say?
1: I would say it's more late romantic in spirit. You know, it tells stories. It it, it has emotional arcs up and down. It goes places. It modulates. It surprises you. There's always a twist or a turn around every corner. It thinks on big terms and deals with big topics, whether either directly in the form of lyrics or
0: metaphorically. But it's definitely programmatic then. Yeah? It's very programmatic. Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not a, a symphony number no. six kind of guy.
1: Yeah. And nor do I see any advantage to being a symphony number no. six sort of guy in this day and age. Why is that? Okay. so So on a practical level, your music will do much better in the world and take you more places if it is about something, right? If there is a program to it, or in the case of say choral music, like if I write a piece of music that is the perfect fit for say a seasonal concert, then it will likely be added to choral programs around the holidays because every choir in the world does a Christmas concert, right? A holiday concert of some sort. If your music is about a theme, like my latest release, To Shiver the Sky, is about, uh, there are countless avenues where you and your record label and your publisher and everyone can sort of engage with the public. To Shiver the Sky is about the history of mankind's quest to conquer the heavens, from Leonardo's earliest sketches about flying machines and his notebooks to John F. Kennedy's monumental We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. There are so many stories within that 11 movement arc that you can pin onto different events around the world. It gives my marketing team at Universal a lot to work with, a lot of bullets, you know, a lot of relevance to, to issues. And that makes the conversation about the piece of music a lot easier to start. So that's the practical side of it. I think on the artistic side, I would love to write my symphony number one but i feel like there are a lot of composers out there that their symphony number 1s are more likely to be programmed by professional orchestras than mine is you know what i mean it's, it is very much like who who are you competing against here like i'm competing against every composer who came before me who released a symphony on a practical level that's that's a tough bit of competition right there right and also also part of me thinks that in a way saying you know i'm going to write my symphony number 1 it's a bit of a, a sort of an egotistical thing, right? Oh, the world is waiting for my Symphony Number One. Not, not to say that that's necessarily the case. Part of me is a little paranoid about that. That said, you know, if somebody came to me and said, "We want to commission Symphony Number One from you," when can you start? <laughs> oh, you know, the answer is yes. I'm. Let's do it. Let's do it now. Let's talk about what this is. But if if I got that commission, you know, like the the moment uh, you know this 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 interview was over, somebody said to me, "We're going to commission this." I would still want to make it about something. I would still want to give it relevance or connection or or make it about the times that we live in or the era that we're in or something. I don't necessarily believe in music that is purely abstract. I enjoy listening to it and I would love to write it, but I find a lot of advantage in being a programmatic composer.
0: I like the way you've illustrated that first purely at a practical level. It's like, don't write a string quartet unless you have a string quartet in mind who is going to play this in the XX season. And I think for all the composers listening, that's just good composer basics. Do you have a do you have a friend who plays trombone and another friend who plays French horn and another friend who plays piano? Try some crazy trio because when you have players in mind or when you have the opportunity in mind, then there's a much higher chance of Getting something played than shelving it in a drawer. A composition can look beautiful on the page, but it's not music until someone plays it. Yeah, you know all this.
1: (laughs) I know. I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, it it is a it's a matter of practicality in a a certain way, right? You know, I've been sort of professionally active for about 20 years now. Having music stay relevant is a very, very challenging, Herculean task. You know, the moment you release something, there will be something else. That comes out right after you that's going to try to grab the spotlight from you. And that just goes on and on and on. Like to find pieces of music that stay relevant for more than a season, I think it's very hard to do. Even if you do find that, you know, you have a piano quintet that you want to write for and, you know, they can perform your freshly written piece, you know, over their their next season. What happens the moment they commission another quintet from another composer? You know, suddenly you're old news and your piece might not get performed. I mean, and this sort of brings me to another point. I think it's so important for composers to also be recording artists and to find ways of recording your works and releasing them because distribution nowadays is a piece of cake. Anyone can record something, throw it on iTunes and Spotify, super easy, right? Your piece essentially does not exist in the public eye until it's got a widely listenable recording attached to it. Until that happens, it purely exists in your catalog in an abstract sort of way. I have a piece, an instrumental piece, a double concerto for piccolo and flute. And no one knows this because after the premiere, which went great, you know, there was never an official recording released or, or anything. And it sort of languished in the dark corners of my catalog for years, constantly being eclipsed by the other stuff that I had that is sort of more forward-facing and audience-friendly nobody's ever seeking out my, my little concerto. Like, I mean, uh, and I'm okay with that. I mean, someday I'll, you know, dust it off and and redo it and, and, you know, maybe release it again.
0: It'll be on the retrospective box set. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. Undiscovered gems, you know, like yeah, long after I've died. Right. Yeah. I should only be so lucky. It's a frustrating business, being a composer, because sometimes you pour your heart and soul into something that you think is honestly your best work, and it gets overlooked by all the shorter, peppier, poppier stuff that you've done, maybe.
0: Does that retroactively influence your style and your projects? I mean, I would say it's fine if it does. Are you going to say, oh, you know, if I do music on another Civilization game, you know there's a built-in audience for that. Yeah. And okay,
1: go on the record. I will always do music for any civilization game, you know, that comes my way. I mean, I love the franchise. We grew up around the same time when it came out. I don't know about you. I spent my entire high school. It's huge. Oh my God, right? It's huge (laughs) everywhere. And everyone was playing it and everyone was, you know, bleary eyed every morning because we'd been awake to 4 a.m. playing it, right? I mean, it was huge growing up and I mean, it's still huge and I love those games and I played most of them, you know, as you also know from playing the game it will eat up so many hours of your life. It is like heroin. Not that I've tried heroin, but this is the closest thing to that. You know, it's basically a very powerful addiction, which is all the more reason why it really pays to find your way to being the guy who writes, the guy or the girl who writes the theme song for one of these games. Because unlike, for example, having a song placed in a TV show or a film where people will basically watch that TV show episode once, and then move on. Every time someone plays Civilization, they boot up the game and they go past my music in the menu screen. And you know what they say about music, the more you hear it, the more you like it, the more it's familiar to you, the more you are accepting of it, right? Right. So those people who discover my music through Civilization, maybe it doesn't catch their ear the first time, maybe it does. But certainly by the 10th or the 20th or 30th time, it's ingrained in their heads. Right. And that's a powerful thing.
0: Let's give you some credit here, because there's there's music that the more you hear it, the worse it gets. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's music that lasts. And that's the more you hear it, the more ways in there are, the more you find to appreciate. So, you know, this is a kid. Nothing will kill a a video game like a crap theme going on. You find yourself getting anxious and irritated and you don't know why. It's because the music's so bad, Mm -hmm. just like driving in the car and a bad song comes on. You're in a bad mood, you don't know why. It's like, "Oh, get this off. Get this off my radio."
1: Yeah, that's true. Which is why in a way, the safe thing to do is the music for airports route. It's the ambient thing, you know. It's basically music as sound design, right? And actually, I love music for airports. And I love the Bang on a uh, Can All-Stars cover they did of that. Oh my god, that is fantastic. I love it. It's just not my style. Over the years, especially where I am now, I've just sort of grown to be comfortable in my own sort of creative skin, right? I mean, I think one of the things that young composers will find is that, you know, there are a lot of people out there writing very different types of music. Like the music I write is very different from Max Richter, which is very different from Nico Muley, which is very different from, you know, Magnus Lindbergh or Saryaho or, or someone like that, right? Or Thomas Addis. It's very easy to not be secure in your own creative voice as you're trying to stake out your your territory in the the creative world, right? Because there's so many people out there with a sound that is maybe a lot more popular than yours, or they've had a few hits with this particular sound. I think one of the things that is a big pitfall for any artist is to just sort of be too influenced by anyone else. Ultimately, you sort of want to discover your own voice and be confident enough that Yes, your voice may not appeal to everyone else out there, but it is still your voice, and it will appeal to some people. And the more you hone your voice, the better position you are in to really get your music out there and to be discovered and and to be thought of as an artist.
0: Sogno di Volare, which was your that was also opening music for Civilization Six. Mm-hmm. And then that led to um, to Shiver the Sky, which is your forthcoming project. I love this track. For me, it recalls in the best of ways Randy Newman's soaring theme for The Natural, where you have this this Lydian feel over an ostinato. Uh, Newman's damn near uh, one-ups the Superman theme. I felt some elements of that here. So I'm really excited about To Shiver the Sky because it literally is a soaring theme. So I can see how that gave you inspiration to literally take to the skies for this project?
1: I think the world of Randy Newman, I got to say. I mean, I was watching Toy Story 4. Oh my God, he's such a gifted composer and songwriter and, and musician all around. I mean, he wasn't necessarily actually an influence, but I can't deny that the whole canon of film music, and especially sort of science fiction scores, I can't deny the influence of that on *To Shiver the Sky, especially the latter movements when we get to, for example, my setting of JFK's moon landing speech. And that's largely programmatic as well, because the idea of science fiction TV, science fiction writing, science fiction in general, people don't realize it, but that was one of the, the main reasons why we were able to put a man on the moon
0: that's well said. Life imitated art in this sense, right? It
1: really did. But not only that, but in this, in the case of um, science fiction, I think you'll find that you know JFK couldn't have just said out of the blue, hey, this is what we're going to do with our entire nation's resources over the next decade. We're going to put a man on the moon. You needed the public to be ready for that statement to be made. And that groundwork was laid by shows like Star Trek, for example, you know? or going back even earlier science fiction written by Jules Verne in the the late 19th century where you know we, he imagined us taking rockets you know trains trains of fire to the moon you know to explore the moon that groundwork is what awakened the public imagination for this and based on that that's the political capital that JFK was able to use to commit his nation our nation to this herculean task as a crazy task And it was truly an amazing moment in the course of human civilization, because it's one of these moments where the first, and I think maybe the the last moment, where the entire world was tuned into this event happening in a positive way. This is the first and last positive moment of this I can think of, where for the first time in history, we had television news that could broadcast an event to every single household on the planet, and an event of such significance that the entire world did tune in. And watch this. And it really did bring us together as a people for a while. That moment, maybe I I, I romanticized it a little. I wasn't alive for it. I mean, neither are you. The nostalgia around that moment, it's what I needed in this moment while writing this album. And certainly in the last few months while we've all been in lockdown, Like this sort of escapism to this world where good people came up with great ideas and people pulled together and made them a reality. That is just very, very calming and and reassuring to me that we, as a people, did have this in our history and we can do this again.
0: Most Americans, perhaps most of the world now, get their introduction, received their introduction to orchestral music, and I would dare say even classical music, through film. Was that your experience as well?
1: Sort of. I mean, Disney's Fantasia? I think that was probably... Yes, it is through film, but it isn't in the same way that I think you're alluding to. I mean, I think that's one of the potent things that I think orchestras are catching on to nowadays, that uh, their nights at the movies, concerts, those do well. Some of them are doing video game
0: concerts. With the movie playing behind them.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is kind of a popular sort of thing. And film music runs the entire gamut of really, really well-written music and really some just trash that you never actually want to perform on on stage right sometimes
0: incidental music is just incidental
1: yeah it's just meant to go away it's sauce you know it's it's a dressing that you put on your the main product which is the, sh- the show right but really some of the most iconic music in the last 50 years was written for film some of the the best known stuff and most beloved things are our film scores and you can't you can't ignore that i don't think I very much make it a part of To Shiver Sky. You know, it's a very programmatic piece, and, and the final movement is about the moon landing. So there is a little nod to science fiction scores in the middle
0: of it. To Shiver the Sky is being billed as an oratorio. How did you think structurally about this piece? You've said that you love programmatic music. So did you have this program start to finish in advance in your mind? Or is this, well, I know this is my starting point. I know there are some highlights here. Let's see how to get from here to there. Or is it, I'm starting here. Let's see where the journey takes me.
1: Uh, a little bit of both. I had an idea early on that I wanted to take Sonio de Volare, which is the first track on Tissue for the Sky, and which already had some notoriety and following as it's the theme to Civilization VI. So I knew I wanted to turn that into something bigger. I didn't quite know what that was at the time until I finally hit on this idea that this would be a programmatic piece about the history of flight. And we we're going to start with... Earliest mythology around flight. I mean, we're talking the Daedalus and Icarus myth, and we're talking Leonardo in his sketchbooks. And we were going to explore that history, not just in terms of oh, which pilot first did this, and you know, when who checked off this this box for you know crossing this ocean or circumnavigating the world, or who built this airplane or this blimp, but also on a, a more spiritual and literary side, like what does being Closer to the heavens mean to us from a a religious dimension or a, you know, or a philosophical dimension, right? Once I had just this, this, this broad outline of this piece being about the history of flight, I then actually turned to my fan community with a Kickstarter campaign, right? They helped me fund the recording of this album and I sought out ideas from them. And I said, you know, like, what do you, this is going to be a certain number of movements, roughly 11 movements. Who do you think belongs on it? Right. And people send in their ideas and they ran the gamut. And some of them were really, really great ideas. And some of them were ideas that were given to me by people who actually worked in aviation. Uh, One backer of mine said, you know, I work for an aerospace company. We design satellites. And the big thing in the back of my mind, in the back of the the minds of a lot of my colleagues is that, you know, we went to school to be engineers, to do good for the world, to, you know, help explore space. But we are being basically put into these situations where we're basically enabling, we're designing weapons of war,
0: essentially. War adjacent at best.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. And you know, in talking to them about this and 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 thinking about it more, yeah, a lot of the the, the advancement of flight technology was either pushed forward by military necessity or co opted by the military after it was developed. And I had to address this in the album. And so, uh, to give you an example, Ferdinand von Zeppelin makes an appearance on the album. He has a, a movement which is called "Oh the Humanity." It's a three part movement where he basically. Develops the Zeppelin with nothing but peaceful and scientific intentions in mind. And then it gets co-opted by the German government to drop bombs on London. And then ultimately, you know, you have the Hindenburg disaster, right? Which basically ended the era of commercial airship travel. This little movement here, it's about five minutes long. It's a bit of a microcosm of all these different stories that you encounter in researching the history of flight and A lot of these were brought to my attention via the the crowdsourcing I did through Kickstarter.
0: Crowdsourcing in the best of ways, not just monetary, but a crowdsourcing of ideas. You would not have come across those conversations unless you really targeted friends of friends. But just to, to put the call out and to get that back, it must have felt really good. It does feel
1: good, but it's also a great way to engage with your your fans and and your public, you know? And I think that's something that other classical artists maybe were slow to embrace. I mean, I have, I think by nature of living in LA in my early 20s, I had a lot of friends who really were trying to make it as singer-songwriters, pop artists, you know, indie bands, whatever, right? And the lessons I learned from them is they stayed after every gig, signed every CD they sold, you know, shook hands with everyone from the stage. They would say, hey, follow me on Facebook or MySpace, you know, or whatever it was at the time that was hot. There was a real hustle that I learned from all my friends trying to break into the the pop world. A lot of that has to do with engaging with your supporters and your fans. And that's what I actually love doing. I think it's just a lot of fun to do so. I think hopefully this has changed, but there often is in the classical world, almost like a, you know, we need to put up a little bit of a wall. We need to preserve a little bit of mystique or, you know, be a little detached or or something from the interaction with our fans. I'm sort of the opposite. I love it. For me, it was just a natural thing to do to sort of crowdsource ideas with my community.
0: Christopher, thank you. Thank you for speaking with me. I hear you on that last point, like elitism is not going to serve classical or classical adjacent or world music or, (laughs) you know, whatever label you want to put on it. Uh, It's not going to serve it well in the 21st century. So I really appreciate engaging with you today about ways to lower those walls. Well,
1: it's been my pleasure as well.
0: Sun's podcast on artistry and craftsmanship we heard a clip from sonio di volare the dream of flight from both the game civilization 6 and from to shiver the sky on Decca gold composed by christopher tin we heard a bit of the super mario brothers theme from the indomitable koji kondo and a bit of steinway artist randy newman's score for the natural finally we heard a clip from daedalus and icarus also from to shiver the sky our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening.